Today's scripture reading will be taken from the first epistle of Peter, chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. That's 1 Peter 1, 11 and 12. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. First, falteringly, and then after a clearing of the throat, loudly he declared, not guilty. Now, 150 plus years from that point, the incident has become a political classic. You see, there was a movement in the Senate to impeach Andrew Johnson, who was the 17th president of the United States. I am not a history major. I imagine a part of the problem was he was the 17th president of the United States. The 16th president was Abraham Lincoln. That's some mighty big shoes to fill. There were other issues. The junior senator from Kansas, a man by the name of Edmund Ross, was caught in a crisis on that crucial morning in 1868. His was the deciding vote as to whether to impeach Johnson or not. And the dice had been loaded in favor of Johnson's impeachment. Fellow politicians had warned Senator Ross, if you don't vote guilty, that means you're political suicide. You need to know that before you vote. The senator, as he put it, looked right down into his political grave. And then there came the call for the vote. Senator Ross, how say you? First falteringly and then loudly, he declared not guilty. And with that vote, he forfeited a promising political career. But you also need to know that with that vote, he kept his personal integrity. Honesty is the best policy. That's more than just something our grandmothers told us. That's a, that's a maxim that many of us have heard frequently over the course of our lifetime. A wise teacher used to tell his, his students before he gave them a test, he would say, I'm giving you two tests today, one of them in trig and the other in honesty. And I hope you pass both of them, but if you can pass only one, then be sure it's the test in honesty. And here's why. Because there are a lot of good people out there who don't know trigonometry, but there are no good people who are not honest. I hope that we all appreciate that as representatives of Jesus Christ, as ambassadors who are walking in this world, and in, in a more specific way, in this city, as representatives of Jesus Christ, that we're all facing that test in honesty every day of our lives. And oftentimes, that test is being taken when we are least aware of it. When our children are looking on, when perhaps a complete stranger is watching how we conduct our business in a place of business here in town, or whatever the scenario might be. Every day there is some test 
of our honesty. And the question that I want us to ask ourselves this morning in the light of God's holy word is, is are we passing that test? Surveys indicate that over 90%, and you heard right, over 90% of the American people now feel that it's occasionally okay to twist the truth. You don't always have to tell the truth. You don't always have to be honest. And that is clearly the prevailing attitude of the citizens of this, of this nation. Jeremy Taylor took the position that it's okay, okay to lie in the following situations. Number one, to those people who are insane. Secondly, to children. And thirdly, to criminals. His reasoning went like this. He said, it's okay to lie to insane people because they're incapable of judging the truth or falsehood. In other words, they don't know any better anyway. And so it doesn't really have any kind of moral or spiritual dimension for them. That was his reasoning. It's okay, he said, to lie to children if our lies are benevolently inclined. That is, we have their best interest in mind. And it's okay to lie to criminals if we can thereby prevent further acts of crime. It's not unusual to read that kind of rationale because there are all kinds of attempts in our world today to justify the lack of honesty. The pros and the cons of being totally honest have always been hotly debated. Our generation is not the only one to question whether or not this is, in fact, a good policy. Many have maintained that telling a lie is acceptable if the motive is benevolent, as in the case of terminal illness. We don't want to hurt someone further by telling them that they're about to die, and so we, we lie to them. We hold the truth from them. Even some religions have seen lying as justified in certain circumstances. And some of these absolutely are astounding. In the Quran, for example, Muhammad wrote that there are two times when it's justifiable to tell a lie. Interestingly, both of these situations involve women. Muhammad wrote the following, A woman may tell a lie in order to save a life or during times of war. And in the Mahabharata, Krishna wrote, that there are five kinds of lies that are justified. Interestingly, these five things are really head scratchers. Listen to them. Number one, lies in connection with marriage. Wow. Can you imagine? Lies in connection with marriage, he said, are entirely justifiable. To me, that's digging the hole just deeper. Here's another one. Lies for the gratification of lust. That certainly is a moral head scratcher. Lies to save one's life, lies to protect one's property, and lies in behalf of a Brahmin. That would be a Hindu holy man. I'm just giving you those examples as, as strange as some of them sound to help us to appreciate that we're living in a world of moral vertigo. We're living in a world in where the true north on our moral compass is no longer identifying for us exactly what kind of behavior, what kind of actions, what kind of thoughts, and what kind of words should proceed from our mouths. I, I want us to know that the Bible takes a completely different position than those that we have just uh, shared with you. That lying is, in fact, hated by Jehovah God. The Word of God says so. God hates lying, and that it's wrong, and that it's destructive. And it also tells us that it has frightening eternal consequences. That is, these chickens, as my grandmother used to say, will one day come home to roost. There are consequences for 
not telling the truth. You might remember it back in Exodus chapter 20, verse 16, that when Moses came down from the mountain, he brought the Ten Commandments. And out of those ten, one of them reads like this. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. God considered it to be of such paramount importance that among the ten rules that he gave to the nation of Israel, one of them had to do with with honesty. Make sure when you speak, you're not bearing false witness. You're not lying against someone. You, You need to make sure that when you open your mouth, you are in fact speaking the truth. In fact, there are other places in the Old Testament where God made it equally clear to his people that lying is completely unacceptable. One occasion would be Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 11. The Old Old Testament, I, I think, was abundantly clear on the subject. Here's what that passage says. You shall not deal falsely nor lie to one another. You have to have help to misunderstand that. You are not to lie to one another. Think about how our interpersonal relationships, how our dealings in business and our dealings at home would be improved if we just obeyed that one rule to make certain that we told the truth every time we spoke to one another. Proverbs chapter 6, in fact, lists seven things that are an abomination to Jehovah God. And out of those seven things, two of them have to do with lying. One of them is a lying tongue, that's verse 6. And then a false witness who breathes out lies, verse 19. Again, interesting that on, on God's spiritual barometer... Out of the seven things that are an abomination to him, two of them have to do with being less than honest. So Jehovah's feelings are clearly stated. Listen to Psalm 101 and verse 7. No man who practices deceit will dwell in my house. God is telling us that we can't have fellowship with him if we do not tell the truth. He goes on then to say, no man who utters lies shall continue in my presence. You have, in fact, by that practice, forfeited your proximity, your spiritual proximity to Jehovah God. A lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, Solomon said in Proverbs chapter 12 and verse 22. So you don't have to read very far into either testament to come away appreciating the fact that God says that as ambassadors walking in this world for Jesus Christ, we've got to make sure that high on our list of priorities is the fact that we are committed, we are determined, we are dedicated to telling the truth. Now, we need to be kind to people, and whenever we speak the truth, Ephesians 4.15 says, Paul said we need to make sure that we're speaking the truth in love. And sometimes when people tell us the truth, there's something missing. And that is it's not motivated by love. We need to, and I've preached on Ephesians 4.15 a number of times, And I usually try to point out that two of the greatest takeaways from that verse, at least in my mind, is that we need to be committed to telling the truth. But then we also need to recognize how important that if we're telling people the truth, that we're doing that in a spirit of love. And people will understand that, I think, if our our hearts really are demonstrating that kind of love that God has enjoined upon us. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 12, verses 36 and 37. I tell you on the day of judgment, men will render account for every careless word they utter. For by your words, you'll be justified. And by your words, you'll be condemned. Perhaps we need to think more about how we use our words, how we speak to people. Since Jesus said that that's going to be one of the major criteria that that he will use in the judgment process. 
And then when John was writing about heaven, in the very last book of the Bible, Revelation 21 and verse 27, here's what John said in that beautiful description of heaven. He not only says what will be there, what that, that eternal city will be like, but he also tells us something about what will not be there. And in that description, he says, and there shall by no means enter into it, that is into heaven, anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie. If I've read that passage correctly, among other things, John is assuring us that when we get to heaven, we won't have to worry about the fine print on the contract. We'll not have to worry about anyone lying to us because there'll be no lying in that eternal city. And I think that ought to be a great point of consolation to all of us. But here we are in our modern time, in the year 2022. And we know that volumes of laws have been enacted in order to try to make sure by force of law that people tell the truth. And so there are truth in packaging laws. There's truth in lending laws. And there's even truth in advertising laws. Make sure that what you're advertising is what you're selling and exactly what you're selling. So the foundation of truthfulness is so eroded that we've come to feel that we need to examine every speech and every contract and every conversation for hidden meanings and for the fine print. A man's word is no longer his, his bond. It's just the place where we began our negotiations. And as a result, the credibility gap has never been wider. It exists between nation and nation, between government and people, between business and customer, and even between parent and child. We just don't trust each other. Untruthfulness has created serious tensions at every level of our society. Observation and experience teach that the instruction of the Lord was right. When he said in Matthew 5 and verse 37, and if you're familiar with your New Testament, you know that's a part of the, of the Sermon on the Mount. And so if Jesus decided to dedicate anything in that sermon, you know that it's especially important. And here's what he said in Matthew 5, 37. Let what you say, speaking primarily to his disciples, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes of evil. Learn to simplify your speech, I think, is what the Lord is telling his people. Make sure that when you say yes, you mean yes, and when you say no, you mean no. But you don't have to go beyond that if you're an honest person to ensure and to reassure people that you're in fact telling the truth. And that's a good definition, I think, of, of integrity. H.D. McKeon said concerning his ver first visit to Oxford, what strikes me, and I'm quoting now, what strikes me most is that there are more than 3,000 young men living in this place, each of whom had rather lose the game than to play the game unfairly. And that, too, I think, is a good definition of integrity. I'd rather lose the game than to play the game unfairly. Let me go back to the Old Testament, if I can, before we end this study, to the book of Job. Because I think Job, by universal consensus, especially among those of us who are students of the Bible, Job is, a, first of all, one of the most ancient books there is in the Old Testament, but Job is a man who exemplified personal integrity. And he said in, 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 I think, the premise verse of that great book, Till I die, 
I will not put away my integrity from me. I I think that ought to be an important takeaway in this lesson, don't you? That is, if we're going to be honest people, if we're going to be people of integrity, it's not going to be something that happens accidentally. It's going to have to be something that we're committed ourselves to. I'm determined, I'm disciplining myself to make sure that when I speak, I'm speaking the truth and that I'm speaking words of integrity. And so Job said, till I die, I will not put my integrity from me. And and that's an impressive statement, even coming from anybody, but especially from this patriarch Job. But it's a heroic quality I don't think is seen until we see the crucible of suffering from which those words were born. You have to understand something of what Job went through to appreciate his determination to not allow his personal integrity to ever lapse. So according to this Old Testament account, Satan set out to destroy the integrity of Job. That's that's the essence of the entire book. And it's almost as if Job had been set up. In fact, God himself was the one who initiated the conversation. And as the story opens, the Bible says there was a man whose name was Job, And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and who turned away from evil. So far, so good. If someone had written a biography about you or me, and they opened that biography with those words, I think we would all feel greatly complimented. And Job was as well. God was so pleased with Job that that he said to Satan, and by the way, this is Job opening chapter, chapter 1, verse 8. Here's what God said to Satan. Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and an upright man who fears God and who turns away from evil? If you've been, in fact, walking about on the face of the planet and you've been looking for someone who has pure motives, who has no ulterior agenda, who is simply a man who loves God and does his will, There's a fellow with a very simple name, J-O-B, Job. You ought to look closely at him because I think that you will be displeased by what you see. But I am, God says, pleased by this man, Job. So God was so pleased with Job that he was willing to make that kind of proposition. And what a challenge. And we know that the rest of the book pretty much is Satan going after Job with a tremendous vengeance. And in a series of devastating tragedies, the Bible says that Job lost his possessions, he lost every one of his servants, and then all ten of his sons and daughters were killed in a common tragedy. And God said to Satan, this is Job 2 verse 3, he still holds fast his integrity. If you want to do a personal psychoanalysis, ask yourself this question. If I had lost everything that Job lost in one 24-hour period, could you hold fast your personal integrity? Could you still be the man or the woman that God brags on like God did with Job? So the Bible says that Job moved or that Satan moved on Job again. He came at him with the second shock and awe campaign. Afflicting him, this is chapter 2 and verse 7, with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And his own wife, seeing the horror of it, seeing the tremendous suffering that Job was experiencing, asked in chapter 2 verse verse 9, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. I think she really had Job's best interest at heart in the sense of if you die at that point, you wouldn't suffer anymore. 
So why don't you just curse God and die and get it over with? But Job's integrity stood the test. More tragedies continued to come. You can read about it in this fascinating book. Job's three closest companions said some hard things to him. Because they were assuming that he had committed some awful sin in order to have been singled out for that kind of trouble. That's the only way that they could figure out that Job was suffering at the level that he was suffering. You've done some horrible thing, you just don't know it. We might call that subconscious sinning. But that was the evaluation of his three so-called friends. And his response is found in chapter 27, verses 3 through 5. He said, as long as my breath is in me and the spirit of God is in my nostrils, my lips will not, listen to me church, my lips will not speak falsehood and my tongue will not utter deceit. Till I die, I will not put my integrity from me. When I get to heaven, now this is Randy, not Bible. This is my personal opinion. But when I get to heaven, there are going to be a lot of people I want to meet. How about you? I want to meet some of those wonderful Old Testament characters. I want to meet some of those characters that you read about in the New Testament who helped build the church from its very foundation up. But in my top 10 list, I want to meet Job. I want to see the man who would declare in the face of being for so many days in the laboratory of life where he was tormented because, not in spite of, but because of his faith, I want to see the man who said, even if I die, I will not put my integrity from him. May his tribe increase. God's people need to determine and commit ourselves to being honest people. So that when our children hear us speak, they know it's true. When our business partner hears us say words, they know that there's some meaning behind it because we don't utter those words lightly. We know that we'll be judged by our words as we've already read the words of Jesus. Think about what Job said, till I die. Integrity is neither born nor kept without a struggle. And Job realized that there is a price to be paid for personal integrity. After all, if honesty was easy, then all of us would be honest. And clearly we're not. So think about his words, till I die. No real integrity belongs only to those who hold to it with with the kind of do or die determination that we find exemplified in the life of Job. There are those who, without the difficulties of Job, they don't sleep near as soundly as Job did because they have a cancer of the soul. My message to us today is that we need to look at men like Job and not at our politicians or at our sports superstars whose words don't mean anything anymore. We need to determine that we're going to be true ambassadors of our Lord in the sense that we're going to be people of integrity and we're going to speak words that are honest. In Channing Pollock's play entitled The House Beautiful, Archie and Jennifer, his wife, were speaking and Archie had come home exhausted because down in the village he had taken a stand against doing some unethical thing and he pretty much was the only one on the side of doing the right thing and the pressure was strong 
And those who wanted him to act dishonestly had called him a little man. And it really hurt. These were his peers. These were men that he rubbed elbows with every day. And because he would not do this unethical thing, they called him a little man. So to Jennifer, he said, I'm not a big man, Jen. And she asked, what is a big man, Archie? And he said, someone like Henry Ford. And she said, no, Archie, a big man is a man who keeps his soul. That's exactly right. That squares with God's eternal word. The man who keeps his soul, who, who honors his word, who stands by his principles, who maintains his integrity. That's the big man. The other men whose virtue is easily compromised, those are the little men. No one, not even the dishonest, would really argue that case. Bible says in Proverbs 22, verse 1, a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. I know there are so many things that we try to instill in our children as they're growing up in our house with their feet under our table. But surely, moms and dads, one of the things that needs to be high on the list is that we need to reinforce with our children every day that a good name is better to be chosen than great wealth. If they understand that, then they are going to, in all likelihood, be people of integrity. You see, integrity, the Bible says, is three-dimensional. It means honesty with God. It means honesty with our fellow man. And really, it means honesty with oneself. Bishop Horn once said, when men cease to be faithful to their God, he who expects him to be faithful to each other will be much disappointed. And a man can't be dishonest with others unless he's first dishonest with himself. He had to deceive himself into believing that somehow I'm going to win out, that it would be profitable to deceive other people. No wonder some of Paul's most frequent words in his letters were, be not deceived. Because Paul knew how easy it is to deceive ourselves. Shakespeare wrote, to thine own self be true, and it must follow as the night the day thou canst not be false to any other man. Violation of conscience destroys our peace of mind. Psychotherapist Dr. Albert Ellis said, failure in in, in self-honesty is at the root of almost every emotional and mental disturbance, end quote. I think he's exactly right about that. On the floor of the U.S. Senate, Senator Richard Russell once said, when the time comes for me to go out of this chamber, Whether I go voluntarily, or my commission is revoked by the electorate of Georgia, or whether I'm carried out in a box, I hope it will at least be possible to say that I am an honorable man. I do not know of anything that might be said that would better please me. My father used to tell his seven sons that all of them could not be brilliant, and not all of them could be successful, but every single one of them could be honest. Character, brothers and sisters, is what really counts. Somebody said reputation is what other people think you are, and character is what you know you are. Sir Walter Scott, on his deathbed, said to his dear friend John Lockhart, Be a good man, Lockie. Nothing else will give you any comfort when you come to lie in this place. And I think that pretty well encapsulates it. Proverbs 20 and verse 7 
The righteous man walks in his integrity. His children are blessed after him. Someone said many years ago, and it stuck with me, that when an honest person hears what God expects of us to do in order to please him, we will either do it or we cease to be honest. And this morning we call you by the gospel message to become a child of God. And you've never turned your back on sin and repentance, confessed his sweet name as a son of God and been baptized to have all of your past sins washed away. We hope this is the day that you'll do just that while we stand and while we sing.